Yo, listen in. On the 11th of February, uh, Mission Motorsport have got a uh, a Troops Track Day and National Transition event going on at Silverstone. Oh, yes. Uh, it's been support- It's been supported by Sir Chris Hoy, MBE. If you're a service leaver or a veteran or a spouse in looking for employment in 2020, 2021, get your ass to this event. Um, as well as a Troops Track Day, there's going to be a, a huge range of potential employers uh, and other services for you covering yourself, heart, heritage, tech, truck, and welfare support. I'm going to be there. Mrs. HR is going to be there. There's a bunch of ex-podcast guests and military supporters and military veterans going to be there on hand to provide advice and guidance, shoot the shit with you if you are transitioning out and looking for work in 2020, 2021. Also, there's going to be a bunch of fast cars there. Ali, right? So get along to the event 11th of Feb. Um, Go to uh, Mission Motorsports social media to find the links. It's on Eventbrite to go and uh, to go and register for that. It's free to register, but you've got to be, like I said, you, for it to be free, you've got to be ex-military, right? So just when you when you go to log in, it's going to be some uh, there'll be some questions to make sure you are ex-military. And I shall see you there on the day. Thank you to Mission Motorsport for organising that and um, and also invite me along. Very 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 glad to be going. It's going to be a really really good day. Um, Sponsoring the podcast. Sponsoring the podcast today are Rugby for Heroes, a not-for-profit organisation raising money for military charities, and they do that through organising uh, organised events throughout the year, every year. They've been doing it for years and years and years. For I think it's their eleventh year they're in now. Yes, I'm sure it's their eleventh year they're in now, tenth or eleventh year. They raised over a hundred thousand pounds for military charities, and the next event is on the twenty seventh of March, twenty twenty. It's going to check that because I. Flipping. Basically, I've said the I said the date wrong a couple of times, and I've confused myself with it. Twenty seventh of March. It is twenty seventh of March, twenty twenty, uh, at the Tame Hair in Leamington. It is a um, it's a supper club, rugby for heroes supper club. It's the second supper club they've organised. You can come along. Um, you can have Northampton Saints rugby player, England national rugby player, and also going to have Richard Sharp from Team Rubicon. Uh, UK CEO, he's coming along to chat as well. They're the two speakers for the event, and also it's going to be awesome food from the Tame Hair. It is my favourite restaurant in the West Midlands by a country mile. Boom. Uh, also sponsoring the podcast today, a West Nissan, the UK's largest Nissan, Nissan dealership. They provide up to a twenty percent discount off. Your purchases, if you are ex-military or actually if you're still serving, so uh, get along to them. Private and commercial vehicles, type vehicles. Uh, you can get new vehicles. You can get used vehicles. They even do lease hire. So get along to Westway Nissan, run by my good friend Tony, who himself is ex-military, and uh, and they also like to where they can employ ex-military personnel. I know within the last six weeks, uh, they have employed an ex-military person. At least one. I know of one because I know him. I know the guy's been employed. I'm very happy. I'm very happy he's been employed by them. And that uh, he went and, uh, and, and and heard about it and applied to them for a job. He's got himself a decent job at Westway. So thank you to Westway for supporting the military. Thank you to Westway for supporting this podcast. And thank you for providing those nice discounts when you go and purchase vehicles. Westwaynissan.co.uk Oh, if you go and get your car um, MOT'd there, uh, January, February. So we're in February now. Yeah, February. Before the end of the month, you'll get a free year's worth of um, international breakdown cover. No, 
no international European breakdown cover, which is worth 130, 140 quid. Go and take your card to get MIT to get some free breakdown cover. So wait, that is it. On to the podcast. My guest today is uh, Mr. Robert Marsh. Robert Marsh is uh, he's ex-military. He served in the regulars and in the reserves during the nineteen nineties, and he is now uh, the director of fundraising at Combat Stress. Uh, I'm very, very happy this podcast went ahead. Uh, not that it was ever in question, but I'm glad that they uh, they they, they uh, said yes to my invite um, because Combat Stress, obviously, at this moment in time, are uh, going through some uh, tough times. Yeah, fundraising crisis. Um, you know, make some significant changes, and they've got a pause on their support for uh, veterans or so referrals for veterans. Um, we had a good conversation. I like to think I uh, I didn't give him an easy time, but to give him a you know it was a, it was a pleasant conversation. But at the same time, there was some challenging questions that um that I, I put to him, and uh, and I think you will enjoy this podcast. And I do think. It's one of the most important ones that's, uh, that's happened, especially when we're talking about veterans' welfare and a sizable organisation like Combat Stress, which has been around for like 100, 100 years, been around for a long, long time. That is it. Enjoy. Uh, HR podcast with Robert Marsh, Combat Stress. Robert. Hello. Happy, as happy as happy can be. Yeah, no, great. Maybe not. Yeah, no, all good. What's the, uh, well, all good, apart from what's the situation with combat stress at the moment? Let's get straight into it. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I could go, you know, three or four years back, but let me deal with what's happening right now. Um, we have just paused res- new referrals into our service. Um, because I think it's because of because of the financial situation. So pause, not stopped. Oh no, we've definitely paused. No, the intention is for us to th- survive and then thrive. Um, so we have we have definitely paused. <clears throat> what we've had to do is because of income. Um, so actually, over the last six years, we've had an average average income of about fifteen and a half million per year. And with our forecasting for this financial year, it's absolutely clear that we're going to land at around 10 million. We had um, a previous hiatus, so about three or four years ago, where we started spending some of our reserves quite considerably. Uh, So one was a four million pound deficit. The following year was about a million and a half. Keep going, I'm listening. Yeah, yeah. It's the first podcast, but I'm going to write stuff down when I come back to it. Okay. That's all right with you. and um, so with those those deficit budgets over those two years, we can't dip into our reserves anymore. They're just they're just not there, and it's and it's prudent not to um, keep on spending money. Um, you know when when the income isn't coming in. So we over the last six months we have invested an enormous amount of time and effort in redesigning our service to veterans, and we've landed I think in a really good place where. Um, we're very, very clear about what we do really well. We're very, very clear about the veterans that we do well with, and it's those people that we're going to focus on. So what we've gone from is about around a £16 million uh, expenditure budget, 
and and we know going forward that we we're fairly confident um, within the bounds of being reasonable about what donations might come in. We're fairly confident that nine million will come in per annum. So we're we're going to model our service around nine million. Um, we think at the end of this year our income will be ten million. We can put a little bit back into reserves to make us more resilient. And then if we do get more money next year or the year after or the year after that, our model is robust enough that we can um, scale it up if funds allow. So um, that's sort of where we are. We've, we've, we've landed on a really good model for um, treating a group of veterans that we know do really well with that model. Um, and if we get more money, then we can scale it up. What's what's um, what's that group of veterans? What's what? What's the group of veterans? So we're going to focus on those people that have got complex PTSD. Um, so I'm not a clinician, um, and there is a there is now a different diagnosis from PTSD to C PTSD, complex PTSD. So there are other factors that sort of bolt on to the top of uh, the diagnosis for PTSD, and there is a there's like a handbook of diagnosis and th- that CPSD diagnosis is now t- does now feature in that in that handbook so it's a separate it's a separate um, disorder I didn't know that so well I know, sorry I know it's a separate disorder I didn't realize that that's just something that you guys are focusing on now and that's interesting because well that's what we're focusing on with this new service model you weren't before though were no we were we were much we I, I if I'm honest I think probably we were charities want to say yes they don't want to say no um and so i think we were trying to say yeah no no come all come everyone and we'll definitely have a look at you and see and if we can't treat you we'll point you somewhere else or we'll put you into a program that might help you that that that's the sort of sense i got there was a real willingness and a passion um for yes we've got to see if we can help that veteran who's picked up the telephone you know they've shown courage in trying to reach out for help we, we really want to help them so we talked about ptsd anxiety and depression and that we had a really wide funnel and anybody with a mental health issue can phone us and then we'll we'll channel that down into areas where we know we can help people but i think now the reality of the financial situation allied to what we know we do really well has allowed us to focus on this particular group, the complex PTSD. Now, I don't think, so my clinical colleagues tell me, that there is nowhere else in the UK that deals with these veterans as well as we do. Interesting. This podcast, I love it sometimes. Also, a nightmare sometimes. I did not know, like, I did not know you are going to mention complex PTSD, and the reason I'm, I'm... I'm mentioning it again just I'm interested in focusing on it I've had a guest on the podcast before and uh, <clears throat> had a bunch of them funny enough but I had one guest on and she's the wife of a, a guy who suffers from complex PTSD right. and I, I remember I think she mentioned it on the podcast very off here but I remember that one of the people <coughs> I may I, I think if I recall the conversation correctly that one of the people they went with, went to to try and get help was combat stress and okay. because it was complex PTSD she wasn't she wasn't uh, so yeah, she w- they weren't helped. <coughs> I, okay. I, I'm I'm pro. I'm not saying they weren't pointing to other people. I'm saying that combat stress couldn't do it. Which which I can understand that different um, organisations, charities have different abilities in different places. What was that? Sorry. So in the past, where you haven't been focusing on it, what what was preventing you dealing with something like CPTSD? Um, I don't think it was. Um, 
I don't think it was something ar- around us pr- preventing helping those people. I think that, um, and again, I, I've, I've got to underline my non-clinical credentials. You know, I, I'm the director of fundraising. So, um, uh, so I think that because we were po- possibly operating in that broad church, trying to trying to satisfy the need from a wider spectrum of mental health issues, um, we weren't focusing on just the CPSD or, or CPTSD, that more complex. But we knew, we knew that you know, eighty percent of the veterans that came to us had a diagnosis or at least had symptoms that were diagnosable as PTSD. Um, and I don't quite know when CPTSD has has differentiated from, um, dare I say, normal or, or standard PTSD. So I think it's a combination of factors. Just more, <coughs> probably more, more, more presenting more symptoms than your average person. I think. I yeah. mean, um, Kate's husband. He won't mind me saying this. You know, he, he uh, he's open about it. He is, his symptoms are pretty acute in terms of PTSD, you know, it doesn't, um, I've mentioned it before, but, you know, anxiety, all the, all that classic stuff, which is very, very acute, you know. There's a very, there's a really good little diagram um, that sets out the, there are about three or four, there are three or four factors on top of PTSD that distinguish it from, uh, uh, that CPSD is distinguished from PTSD. Anyway, we could, we could put that on our website or we could send it to you or whatever you want to do. Let's uh, yeah, send it over. Let's let's go back to what we started off with. So, um, I'm through the notes here. You were talking about <coughs> you were previously on around about fifty million pound. You said income income a year. That's yeah. what you, that's fundraising. Fifteen million fundraising. No, a year. That's what you were on. No, so okay, on. so income is different. So there is voluntary donations, which is a bit a bit. Um, jargony. So that's people giving us money. So there are a number of recognised income streams. So individuals that give us a donation or a monthly direct debit, those individuals who then want to leave us a legacy when they pass, um, corporates who want to support what we do. There are organisations that exist to give money away, trusts and foundations. Um, we run some events. There are also major donors that we try and um, communicate with and steward and bring on and say look would you like to invest in what we're trying to do so that is all voluntary you could build stuff yeah Yeah. exactly so that was all voluntary income and that is running at about seven eight million and then on top of that was earned income or contractual income so we we currently have a contract with nhs scotland which is about which is north of one million per annum and that's for treating veterans in scotland um but then uh, we also had a, a contract with NA, NHS England, which was to put, I think it was about 230 veterans per year through our ITP, the Intensive Therapy Programme. Um, so all of, all of that stacked up together um, give, would add up to the 15 million. Uh, and then there's investment income. So we have some reserve, reserves and then uh, our asset managers look after that and give us, you know, that we get a return from them. So yeah, all of that added up. So the so the voluntary income is a smaller amount. So when I um, when I rejoined Combat Stress in 2016, the way that the earned income and the voluntary income was distributed, it was it was 40% to 60%. So 40% came from earned earned sources contracts, and 60% came from uh, voluntary income. Now that has that has shifted, and we're now ninety five percent reliant on um, on voluntary income. 
in a very challenging fundraising market. We're not the only people that are, are experiencing a downturn in donations. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm a bit of a charity anorak and I, I read some of the charity press and we are not the only, we are not the only charity, not, not least the military sector, but, but everywhere. Everywhere is really struggling. So the projection of uh, a six mil- around about a six million pound downfall for for twenty twenty. Yeah, that are you saying that's due to a reduction in the voluntary income? It, it's a bit of both. So, <coughs> um, co- combat stress has been very fortunate over the last six years of, and we call them. I don't know whether I should call them dollops, but we call them dollops. Where so poppies in the moat, we were a beneficiary of the sale of those poppies, and I think that netted something like nine hundred. Oh, you know, uh, so uh, way back when, you know, oh, okay. um, uh, some of the LIBOR funding. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, we put in a bid for two point zero seven million, which was successful. So there was another. So there were all these. So we set out the budget at the beginning of the financial year, and we we think, okay, well. This is where we think we might land. So there's voluntary income, our earned income, all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, literally right afield where <coughs> nobody had seen it coming, we got a dollop of money. And um, and th- this year we haven't had a dollop. So so th- that's where partly we've gone from six, 16 million to predicting 10 million at the end of this year. The dollop being unanticipated, un. un- unforeseen yeah and we get a whack of money exactly and you can't you can't really in all honesty build a strategy around it because it's just luck you know um you know great luck but sometimes they just come so for example last year we had we had um a legacy from a very very generous benefactor who had been supporting us during her lifetime and um uh, and she passed and we were one of four charity beneficiaries and we had a legacy of 1.2 million well I mean, that's a game changer for, for most organisations. And you can't, you know, legacies are notoriously unpredictable. Um, so, you know, this year we might get nothing. Yeah, I mean, we really might not get anything from, from the legacy income. So is it, so if we, you're saying they can't build a strategy around that, that kind of, those dollops, if you like, yeah. then how, how did it end up that you were forecasting 15 million in the past? Was that just based on the previous spending, which included a dollop? And is it now a case of smarter forecasting? Or, or no, not? I think w- the, the in the past, so certainly in the last five years, what we've been able to do is smooth out what is, an, in effect, a cash flow issue. We've been able to smooth that out using reserves. Because we've already spent some of those reserves, we can't go to that bank of, of last resort again. Um, you know, reserves are a very important part of running a well-governed organization because if things get really really bad and you have to fold an organization i'm not saying that's happening with combat stress but if you if things get really bad then you want to you want to um deconstruct the organization in a very organized way and you can do that with some of the money that's in reserves interesting come on to that reserves because that's something that people get a massive hang up on and i've ranted about it in the past yeah. the way i see uh when i look at <clears throat> when i look at anything to do with and i'm no like financier i'm no businessman you know but when i look at anything when i look at the charity thing <clears throat> i look at it in a way that i look at it in a way that okay you, you, you run it like a business it has to be run like a business the yeah. difference between a charity and a business is a is what they do with the profits 
charity has profit, they call it a different thing. Yeah. It, they, it's and they service, use that money to yeah. go back in. They, they invest it back into the, yeah. the the beneficiaries, the people they're trying to help. Yeah. Business doesn't do that. Um, but you have to run them in very, very similar ways. Albeit, I would argue, it's much more difficult for a charity to do it because they're under much more scrutiny, mm. especially over the last 10, 15 years with, with well, arguably Health Heroes kicked it all off, you know, because they were so successful and that, and, 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 they, because they were so successful, and when I say successful, I mean in inverted commas, because they and they get loads and loads and loads of, of money in, um, and then and then it almost became you know impossible for them to please all the naysayers about them. And, and again, it's it's not too dissimilar to what's going on with common stress. Would I be right or would it be wrong? Well, we we don't sit on an enormous amount of re- reserve. Um, there isn't a massive pot. So uh, as I've been talking about we have been spending it um to keep the level of service delivery at, at, at where we had wanted it to be for the number of veterans that were seeking help um so i think uh it was it was not last year so three years ago three financial years ago we had a you know four million pound deficit budget so we were still running services at this particular level but the income wasn't supporting that that level of activity so what we were doing was using our reserves to pay for that then the following year it was a one and a half million pound deficit so there we are there's five and a half million of reserves that's gone and then last year we had a small um surplus but we knew that that wasn't going to that we knew that we couldn't necessarily predict that going going forward and so so this year where we are predicting only 10 million set against an average expenditure over the last six years of 15 and a half million per per year we just don't have the reserves to dip into um so our reserve policy as set by the trustees is i think if i remember the wording rightly it's six months of budgeted expenditure so we've planned to do this and it's six months of reserved uh, of budgeted expenditure which is actually, i can't remember the, the precise figure but i know at the moment we're something around uh 3.8 or four months so when it should be six we're we're you know a a third adrift so one of the priorities would be if we do have a surplus is to make sure our reserves are in a fit state to go forward to make sure that the the organization is well governed so we don't have an enormous number we don't have an enormous amount of reserves no um and other, other military charities do but you really need to speak to them about their results. No, no, I, I only mentioned it. I didn't want to draw comparisons between, sorry, I didn't want to draw comparisons between combat stress and health for heroes. It was just, they, they I, I just remembered health for heroes being, there was all of a sudden there's a highlight about reserves. It's, yeah. Why are they sitting on so much money? Why aren't they spending it? But that, but that was, that was, that, if, if I'm honest, you know, that, that was Bryn and Emma's, um, that, Parry, that's what they, that's what they set out to do. They were saying, look, there's loads of reserves in the military charity sector. Um, we want to build this swimming pool at, Headley Court, well, wh- why doesn't everybody just get together and build it? Um, and I think that was some of the frustration they felt. So they said, right, well, we'll do it ourselves. And then it just took off. And I don't think even they had predicted what, what help for heroes would become. No, yeah, but, but coming, back, coming back to combat stress. Yeah. So coming back to the reserves thing. Yeah. Um, you explained it really well, I think. And the way I was looking at it was, <coughs> this is one of the... This is one of the most important things about having reserves. Um, and it's that, so look at a, 
a bank, ignore a chart, you look at a bank, a bank comes into problem, a bank services loads of people. If the bank runs out of money and lots of people lose money, yeah. lots of investors lose money, the UK loses money, and then all of a sudden you've got an RBL, you've got an RBL getting bailed out, uh, not RBL, the Bank of Scotland, yeah. RBL, yeah. you've got, yeah. bank, you got Bank of Scotland <laughs> getting bailed out with the government. Yeah. Go, Why are they doing that? Because there's so much going to be lost. Yeah. Same happens with, same happens, come, happen with companies, and just banks. It doesn't happen with charity sector. But still, Combat stress, you've got a duty of care to people. Your own your own duty of care that you set yourselves to yeah. look after beneficiaries. And I'm just imagining if I'm a person, if I'm sitting with combat stress and combat stress has got no reserves and I'm in the middle of a six month program or a twelve you know, a CBT of 12, 12 sessions program and all of a sudden combat stress goes through the pan and I can't carry on with six sessions because um your your forecast for the year has been less and you've got you're sitting on no money to carry yeah. on. Yeah. Man it's going to impact so many lives, which comes back to the importance of those reserves that you're talking about. So there are two groups that we do need to satisfy with this. Our beneficiaries, absolutely right, and that's one of the reasons that people come to Combat Stress to work for the benefit of veterans. But there's also employees as well. You know, we need to be a responsible employer. So, you know, if, as you say, if, if, if Combat Stress goes through the floor, then, you know, you know there is employment law. It's there for a, it's there for a reason. And um, so... You know, reserves are there to help wind up a charity if the trustees decide that actually it's had its day. So I think I and the bigger charity, the bigger charity, generally the bigger the, bigger, the, the bigger reserves have the to reserve, be. They have to be, yeah, yeah. Um, and because it's insurance yeah. for the beneficiaries, that's what it is. Yeah, it, and the employee, it is. Employees. But then, but then the, the wider debate, which I guess we probably don't want to have, is there are there are charities out there who have massive reserves and so the argument is well why don't you spend that first before coming to the great british public to say give us some money now i know as a fundraiser it's very difficult to turn that money off from the fundraising from the fundraising perspective and then to turn it back on five years ago uh, five years hence you know it's very difficult it's very difficult so yeah it's a and, point. and then and then also tie into that that um no, I agree. And uh, what, you know, why would you turn around to British public and say, stop giving us so much money because our reserves are getting bigger? Yeah. And you go, well, spend it faster. But then, because there's so much scrutiny yeah. over how it's spent, this is <coughs> so, it can almost have a de- degrading effect on, on the quality, I think. Yeah. So uh, there, the are t- there, are, there are two figures that I'm really proud of. So I'm a donor to Combat Stress myself. Um, we also have the charity in our will, my wife and I. Um, we spend 80p from every pound we raise, directly helping veterans. 80p in every pound. So 20p is spent on, yes, fundraising, you know, our fundraiser salaries, all that sort of stuff, on governance, on making sure that the charity is professionally and well run. So 20p. Now, I am totally happy with 20p of every pound I donate going to that governance piece. So that's one thing. The other, the other thing is, is, is the return on investment in fundraising. For every pound that the trustees put into fundraising, m- me and my team bring back five. And if you compare that with um, other military charities, we are second only to another. I won't mention them. But we're doing re- we are doing really well with the resources that we've got. Um, and I can really understand the difficulty that the trustees have. Because, of course, the obvious thing would be, well, put more into fundraising and you'd raise more money and you'd help more veterans. But where we are right now, if we did that, we'd have to really dial back our services and that, and then that would put that 
ATP out of every pound out of kilter. Um, so in terms of a, um, you know how good we are at fundraising and how much we give, how much we use resources well, I am completely personally satisfied. Um, you know, as a donor, that we're that we're doing a pretty good job. Was the was the the fifteen million that was that, was that for twenty nineteen the fifteen million projected income yeah including voluntary including yeah 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 uh, what was the other two? Oh, earned income so earned contracts income, and yeah. that sort of stuff that was the prediction for twenty nineteen yeah so it's for the sorry for the end of twenty twenty so this the the nineteen twenty financial year yeah yeah and then the next prediction is six million uh, no, nine million no, nine million we're, we're going to model to nine million we're ah. forca- we're forecasting ten at the end of this year why is that such a the five million is huge to not to not have been able to seen it go. why has it not been a gradual decline and all of a sudden now you're talking about 30 odd percent yeah because why wasn't it seen why didn't you see it coming because yeah sometimes some of the some of the shortfall particularly you know you know that particular donation doesn't come in that you've predicted the other one doesn't come in that one doesn't come in you slightly underfall underperform on that event and then actually after a while it just all of it just starts gently adding up um so I think we were we were hopeful of other quite large um, incomes that just are not going to materialise. Um, and and one of them was the um, we launched the at ease appeal in May last year, and th- that hasn't really delivered in the way that we had anticipated. Um, so that you know there was a there was a two million pounds income set against that appeal. Um, now. We've had, we've had quite a, uh, quite a few very generous pledges, but the pledges have extended out over you know a two or three year period. So the income is not going to come in in this financial year. So I, I use that as one example, but there are many others. So you know if if um, if you know an organisation that you had half predicted is going to give you a hundred thousand pounds or two hundred thousand pounds, and it doesn't happen, and that and that is repeated a number of times. Um, you know, it soon it soon starts adding up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, What's um, since the crisis? What would what would would you say is the crisis going on at the minute? Since since this has come about and and, the, and it was announced in, yeah, in the media last last week last week yeah, yeah it was last Saturday wasn't that, it? Um, we last Saturday. that you're pausing you're pausing the taking new referrals on. <coughs> Interesting when you uh, when you said that earlier pausing and the media choose to say stopping. To different, different, different. Yeah, is it, <laughs> different it's definitely it's a definite pause. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is around people's, you know, professional probity. They don't want to say to a veteran, "Yeah, come on, we will take you on," knowing full well that um, we are trying to resize our offer. Um, and you know, I for one, if I was a if I were a clinician and I was almost giving false hope to people, well, that's just wrong. And um, and there was a lot of debate about that, um, you know, internally uh, um, amongst the um, exec about how we would, you know, should we do that? Um, should we say we're going to pause? How long are we going to pause for? A month? Three months? I mean, ha- you know, so there's a lot of, there was a lot of agonising around that. But um, um, I have a great deal of sympathy for my, clinical colleagues who are dealing with veterans day in day out face to face um 
that this was, I think it was the best thing and the right thing to do, to say, actually, we're going to pause, we'll deal with the reservoir of veterans that we've already said, you know, come to us and deal with those as as best we can. Um, And to some of those, we might have to say, look, I'm really sorry. I know that we created some expectation, but this is where this is where we are because of course when you go through these consultation processes with staff uh people do tend to leave with their vote with their feet and say actually i'm frightened i've got a mortgage i've got a family i've got this i've got that i I can't stick around on the on the hope that there might be you know another funder so people you know people do leave um so the capacity of what we're able to deliver does start to diminish um what has Capacity and quality, yeah, absolutely. What what has um, what has been the engagement with the government on this? If uh, um, yeah, uh, there's been actually there's been a, there's been a lot. I haven't been party to any of that, um, but we've got a very active um, set of volunteer leaders. So in the form of uh, General Sir Peter Wall, who's our president, our uh, chairman uh, Giles Peel, um, other trustees, and also the executive. So I know that. Um, I know that there have been meetings not only with MOD and the Office for Veterans Affairs, but also with the NHS. And there is a co- there is a constant dialogue um, of because you know, of course, we were contracted with NHS England up until two years ago, um, and of course, you know, NHS Scotland, who currently um, have a contract with us in Scotland, are also concerned. You know, uh, what's going on? Um, so there, those relationships are. Um, constantly being you know the plates are being spun tillers touched uh, so that that conversation is going on but i i haven't been i haven't been party to it um uh so yeah i one hopes that if we can be persuasive enough to and i guess it's central government to say look this is the service we offer this is the group of people that we know do really well with this service um we think they're not getting it from anywhere else because a lot of a lot of veterans say that they have tried to access a service through the nhs and really haven't engaged with it for whatever reason um then for for actually what are relatively small amounts of money given that we do have a very generous and loyal supporter base for relatively small amounts of money that this problem can be you know arguably alleviated uh uh so when you say about generating it internally or asking for a small... Well, no, asking... So asking... I, and I don't know who, who it would be, but, you know, either health, NHS, or, you know, Department of Health or the MOD, say, look, actually, we know that we could do much more. We've landed on a model that works. We know it's scalable. We wouldn't change it if we had loads of money. We would just do more of it. Um, we know it works. We know this is the group we want to focus on. They do really, really well within this programme. Just... Give us some more money. Is this the program you alluded to earlier? Yeah. So this is the service re- service redesign. Right, go so we're going to have um, a hub model um, with community outreach. So so this is um, a, a small hub would be you know fourteen clinicians something like that um, who would who would look at or deliver care support treatment to veterans who can get to that quite easily. So hopefully close to a, a major economy so i mean birmingham or east of birmingham would be quite a good place to site one um and the clinicians would spend most of their time delivering 
their services within the hub, but then also spend, you know, 20% of their time doing outreach. So let's say there's a veteran who's agoraphobic, who doesn't want to go out in public, doesn't want to go out into open space. Well, we would go and see them in their own home. Um, just to make things you know, much more efficient in terms of using the resources that are available to us. And also doing, things, um, doing many more um, interventions digitally, so using Skype or other um, video you know, f- programs that people can use. Um, and we've done a pilot with just over 20 veterans using uh, you know, a Skype interface, and it, and it works really, really well. So, um, so that's the model we would go to. Um, and so we've got our current model is uh, one of those hubs in Scotland, uh, actually two in Scotland. I think there's one in in the Highlands, like a little micro hub, t- small hub. What one in the Central Belt, one in Northern Ireland, one in England, uh, another one, another smaller one in England in the Midlands, and the hope is to have one on the M62 corridor and then probably one in the northeast because we want to be located where there is a concentration of veterans so that we can can help them as efficiently as we can um when when you're saying hub you mean a geographical location <coughs> a cent a center yeah, a yeah. C- so you get create a cent- have you what's the what's the current model then? Uh, well the the current model which is what which is what we are transiting from now to the new um hub model the current model is we have three treatment centers one in surrey one in Shropshire and one in Ayrshire. Um, two are residential, the Scottish one and the Southern English one. Um, and then we also have community teams who go and see veterans in the community. Um, and we have, of course, we have our helpline, which is a 24-hour helpline, um, and a peer support service as well, which is pretty much v- veterans who run um, a group for other veterans so that's the so treatment centers community helpline and peer support so we'll move to this hub model um which is i i would argue probably better located than we are now um there will be some residential element to it but but less um because that is really that's a really expensive way of delivering treatment and some of the international experiences that Arguably, you don't need to do that nursed twenty-four hour nursed care, um, you know, uh, for for this particular group. So I think we're, we're trying to land on the best way of delivering the best service to veterans for the most um, bang for your buck. You know, for the most cost-effective way. Yeah, interesting one there, which I reckon. Interesting thing you mentioned there, which I reckon some people would listen to and think that's a step backwards. Is uh, sorry, sorry. Is um, is your your use of <coughs> your communication technology now? And I don't agree. If people think that I don't agree with that, I think that's I think that's fantastic. As long as <coughs> as long as that you, that more use of you know your comms technology, like you're talking about Skype there. Yeah. As long as that use of it doesn't reduce or doesn't compromise the actual face to face talking to someone in person. Um, uh, treatment therapy meet in support because if you can bring in that comms tech into it it actually means you're more engaged you're going to be more engaged with the beneficiary um for a fraction of the cost of actual meeting in person that's in, that's interesting i mean you know 
because of the geography of the UK, you know, if you have a community team in the southwest and they're based in, let's say, Exeter, and they're going to see somebody down in, um, you know, the south southern tip of Cornwall, well, arguably you could have somebody driving four hours down there, seeing somebody, and then driving four hours back. Well, that, I mean, much as that face-to-face interface is, is, a, is a really good and positive and, you know, enforcing or effective thing, it's deeply, deeply inefficient. Um, and in order to reach more veterans, having done this pilot with technology, um, you know, that with what we've got, that seems a sensible thing to explore and develop. Um, I mean, undoubtedly, what's happening with the, you know, the reduction in our finances is that we will be treating fewer veterans. That, I mean, it just stands to reason. Um, but I think, the, I think the, the really good thing about what we have designed in this new service model is that it is scalable. And we arguably haven't had that before. Um, you know, I've said that charities want to say yes to everything. And so we've tried to do as much as we can. Um, but the reality of where the money is now is that, you know, we have to come up with something that um, works for, um, you know, as many people as we can treat um, and that we have to be focused on 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 the group that we can um, treat the best and, and not just on, on, on sheer numbers. Is there, a, um, is there a, uh, maybe a risk that with more... Physical locations, albeit smaller. You know, you have you mentioned fourteen yeah. practitioner, uh, practitioners collisions. Yeah, um, that the the overheads would compromise the efficiency because you, what you're talking about here is being become a more efficient organisation, which has been forced by a crisis. Yeah, which is quite is not that's not a new thing, is it? Yeah, you know, it takes a quite it takes a drama, a big drama to actually improve yourself, a person or an organisation. We know all too well that right. Well, with more, I'm just thinking from my past experience with more locations and a, 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 a risk of having more overheads. And then, yeah, like I said, I, I, I think if you look at this from a, a different angle, okay, <clears throat> um, if if somebody doesn't matter who they they are, if, if somebody came to us now and said, I will give you 10 million a year for the next 10 years, would, would as we as an organization go back to our old model which is the three treatment centers and community teams and the and and what i've been told by the, the clinical teams is no we've landed on this service this service redesign we spent a lot of time thinking about it and modeling it through um all we would do is we would just deploy more of what we have now landed on not go back to something that we did before so i think i think actually i mean we talked about why have you why have you done this now i mean six months ago i think you know as an executive we saw uh, the writing on the wall in terms of um we are going to have there's going to be a hard landing and so we initiated the service redesign work you know a good six months ago um and and i think it's something that needed to be done um there was a a smaller resetting of our cost base about two or three years ago um, in the in the hope that 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 we would um, be able to grow out of quite a difficult situation because we went from a what was it a four million pound deficit to a one and a half to a small surplus and everybody was thinking this is looking all right um, but um, you know we realised that this these you know these difficult times were coming and we needed to initiate a service redesign um, so actually 
for the for the individual veterans concerned who are, who have heard over the last week that um, you know combat stress is pausing its referrals. For some of those, I can imagine that is a deep body blow. Um, but I think for the for the organisation to thrive going forward, um, th- this is the in some ways a, a good thing to have happened because we have then given ourselves the time and space to think about what the service would look like. And we have got some really, really talented clinicians who have been, I mean, working their socks off to try and uh, come to a a position where they've got a model that works well. Well, that's what struck me as interesting just now where um, where you mentioned that, uh, you know, why has it been done now? And if you take the the, the old model... To the clinicians now, and they'd say no. Oh, sorry, if you've got the ten million pound donation every year and guaranteed, and we'll we, we just carry on doing that. Thing. Yeah, and but you mentioned the clinicians, so it, and you mentioned it'd be them that would make a decision. So, is that to say that it's the people on the sharp end who are dealing with the the, the beneficiaries and the people who know understand the medical side of things? They have been the lead in this transition to in this tr- transition in terms of the new business model. Um, well, certainly the clinical. Um, my clinical colleagues are represented at exec level and the way that the, um, so we have a medical director and we have a director of operations who are both clinicians. Um, we had a, we have a, a head of psychological services. Um, she's a clinician. Um, but also <coughs> on the, um, on the trustee board. So you have the main board and then sitting underneath that are a number of subcommittees and there is a, there is a medical <coughs> subcommittee who, uh, you know, everything that, the executive propose has to go through that committee stage then to be agreed and ratified at, at board level so so yes the service redesign has been um, carried out by the my clinical colleagues but it has been um, moderated and tested and challenged by the executive colleagues that they have but then also at trustee level and I, I've worked for I've worked for three charities and I think arguably this is this is one of the most um, well put together boards um, that that I've experienced and um, and there are some really really good people on there um, why is that what's different I don't know what it is about the military culture I think um, Oh, so the other charity is not military. No, they weren't. No, okay. no, no. no. Um, I, I think there is something there is something that draws people to, um, you know, the, well, the military in one in as a you know an organ as organisation. So the army, the air force, the Royal Navy, the Royal Marines. Um, I think there is something that draws people to do that, um, and I think in in the same way that you know we have some of those military values, you know, respect, integrity courage moral and physical i mean not obviously not the physical side now but um and i think those values are are quite meshed and um i don't know don't know what it is i I, am i'm 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 so impressed uh by the commitment um and the energy both intellectual and um otherwise that our trustees put into uh helping combat stress and helping veterans um not for any financial reward at all um and you can think of some of the people on the board who who you know they don't need this for their cv at all and one i can think of is 
you know, Professor Sir Simon Wesley, um, you know, he is a national figure. He doesn't need to be on our board to shore up his CV. Um, you know, deep respect for all of them. Um, what percentage of the board and the trustees are military? Oh, um, <laughs> now you're asking. In fact, no, no, no. Uh, is, uh, it, there is a there is a good representation of of ex ex services on the board. Yeah, um, there is a good representation. I can't quite think about the. the um, I don't know. I asked the question. Five, no, five out of twelve, something like that. I can't, can't, I can't, I can't. And of course, I'll forget one, and they'll go, "Ah, you forgot me." And I'm, I don't want to do that. We are so. One of the things that we have talked about in this whole service redesign stuff, though, is that we are veteran centric. You know, we try and position the veteran at the centre of our thinking. So that that um, I mean, I know that sounds a bit, you know, blindingly obvious, but there's all 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 that stuff around co-production as well, which is, you know, are we testing what we do with the people that are going to be plugged into it? You know, so are, are veterans contributing to some, you know, some of the stuff that we are proposing? So, you know, we're planning to do underwater therapy. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, why not? Because of all these reasons. So, it, you know, and I've just, that's a rubbish, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? I was just making something up. But um, the, the co-production thing is is really important. So we, we are... You know, we are trauma-informed and we are veteran-centric. And I think those are quite, you know, important things. You mentioned earlier that um, not just with combat stress, but <clears throat> the charity sector in general seems to take a big downturn on the fundraising income side of things. Yeah. Why do you think that is? And how long has that been going on for? Um, I, think, I think probably quite a lot of it has... Um, is an overspill from the the credit crunch. So you know, two thousand and eight, and and from my experience, nothing really happened in terms of a downturn in income until about two thousand and eleven, and then it it just hit. I think people then realised that there had been a problem, and it you know there was a lag to it. Um, I think that poor Olive Cook, uh, this lady who was a uh, poppy collector. In, um, she was a poppy seller for the Royal British Legion, and she uh, was the one that jumped off the Clifton Gorge. I no. I, okay, wait, so a lot. No, lot, lot talking about. She she's she's almost like a talisman for um, uh, how badly behaved charities had been. So, um, and her family said that you know, or the newspapers reported that she had you know sacked black bin liners full of begging letters from charities and i think it it it, she was she was seen as a um she was seen as um a typical um the charity sets called them dorothy donor so you know an educated older lady that's what i'm trying to get in i don't i don't i don't know we've got two deaf people in here trying to have a conversation well i can hear something i can hear Ah, that's what it was. Sorry, go on. I thought it was that World War Two bomb going off <laughs> in Soho. Um, so I think, um, yeah, so I, I think she was representative of all those people that had been really miffed by 
charities just pursuing them relentlessly for donations and you may have experienced it the, i i certainly have can you ex- I, you i'm still missing this right who was olive cook olive cook was a um a fundraiser she, yeah she was a, a um a fundraiser um she obviously got onto a database somewhere and then that data was was probably being sold to different you know when you you know sign up to buy a pair of chinos and it said would you be interested in hearing from third parties that will yeah yeah. yeah, and um, and then you get inundated with, or if you go and look for lawnmowers online, then you keep Absolutely, on getting. Yep, so, yep, yep, so yep. it's that data mining stuff, and um, and so the papers she she jumped off the Clifton Gorge, but her family said she had um some history of depression or other mental health issues. I don't quite know, but she was she was she was grabbed by the papers by saying this is you know charities have been pursuing this woman for donations and donations and donations it's all rotten um so what i'm trying to say is that 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 started some of the lack of trust in in charities so then um there was a new um code of practice for fundraising there was a new um fundraising regulator set up um and i don't think we've quite got back to I mean, I think trust trust in charities is building again, and some of the evidence and research suggests that. Um, but you know, the the tra- trajectory of of, of um, income has been going down over the last you know over the last decade. It is a lot harder these days yeah, to be a dishonest charity, and to be a, because <clears throat> one of the things that gets harped on about military charities is there's over four thousand or five thousand military charities in existence, right? And if that if if Regardless of the charities, big or small, if the intentions of that are charity, the people behind it are honest, then so yeah, whatever. You know, I, I've been a beneficiary of big charities and small military charities. Yeah. Um, but the vast majority of that four thousand number of military charities, those foundations as well included. Yes, that, exactly. Trusts, so, yeah, so, so like, they are they are run by volunteer trustees. So, I mean, I think there's the ninety second f- foot benevolent fund for a regiment that ceased to exist you know 50 years ago and it's just run by trustees there is no there are no imp- paid employees well I, I'm, I'm a chairman of i'm a chairman of a charity and uh which people don't really know this but because you wouldn't think of it as a charity and we have just to reinforce your point there we have a thing called the parachute regiment association okay and that is you know it's a it's a parachute regiment association is a registered charity. I didn't know until last year. It's a registered charity, and it exists to um, promote, uh, promote parachute regiment to look after its veterans and their families. And you know, it's it's yeah. a it's a military association, yeah. but it's a registered charity. And all of the branches. So there's got, I'm there's a Coventry branch, there's a Chelmsford branch, there's branches all over the place, and every single almost every single one of those branches is also a registered charity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. and and it's one of it's one I understand why, but they're a charity in your own right. But they serve a very like I'm a chairman of the Coventry branch. We serve a very very specific set of beneficiaries. Yeah, very small number, tiny, yeah. but we're yeah. still a charity, and yeah. that still goes into that bigger so, number. So they're probably thirty. Bring that number down. Yeah, subsets of <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, of of the of the association. Yeah. Oh yeah, and the rest. Yeah, and the rest. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. and. Yeah. You know, big is not is not always best. Um, you know, we we know because we see the letters that come in. We know that there are people that only want to support veterans with mental health issues, and you know, arguably, we are the charity for veterans suffering from mental health um, problems. And um, so, if we were, you know, 
amalgamated or subsumed into another organisation, would all that money just flow to, to that bigger organisation? And arguably not. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. But, yeah, um, you know, there could be some amalgamations, undoubtedly. I think that would be a good thing. Yeah. There's also, I mean, going back to the smaller charities, as much as there are those benefits to the smaller charities, again, and, I, and I'm, I'm talking about the ones that are honest, good meaning, well-intentioned people behind and I'll mention one specifically, and it's, a, um, it's called the 353 Trust, and it's very small. Mm. It's family-run, not unlike what Health for Heroes would have been like back in the day, yeah. um, but it's kept small. Um, I, ju- I think probably because of lessons learned off of previous things. Um, and the advantage that, and that's just one example, and I'm only saying that, I'm only saying that charity because I know the charity, right? And that's the, the, the benefit of a small charity is as you become a, a large organisation, now my charity, as you become a large organisation, you become very much more um, uh, not susceptible, um, beholden, to rules and regulations mm-hmm. and legislation, internal as well as external, like you're saying, boards and trustees and whatever. And for the smaller charities, they quite often have the advantage of being able to react much, much, much faster. Yeah. Because they can they can make an assessment judged on a, a phone call. Yeah. Without having to validate things. Yeah. Because as a charity gets bigger, then you get more people. Yeah. And it happens with the military. Yeah. And, yeah. and it happens with other charities. P- people ring up trying to, they want to get some money, they want to get some free stuff. They want to get, you know, just, do you want to, they want to benefit dishonestly from a charity who's trying to do good things. Mm. So you have to be more. You know, yeah. So you need processes, which, yeah, and exactly. all of that takes time. Is yeah. it what the point of making is the place, there's a place for everything. Yeah. It's a place for the big charities, place for small charities. Um, how do we go on to that? Um, it was around uh, why, why is it why is fundraising becoming more oh, difficult yeah, and yeah, then yeah. you know lack of trust and all those sorts of things and I think you know I think I think also Brexit you know I I think people have I know I know say that? I know we thought it's, it's, all, it's all done you can't <laughs> say Brexit but I know I think people have been um, you know markets don't like uncertainty um, and and markets are made up of people. People don't like uncertainty. So, you know, until it's all ironed out and we know what we're doing, then then people and you know, charitable giving is is completely discretionary spending. You don't you don't have to give to charity. Um, and I think people are trousering their cash and saying, "I'll sit on it until I'm feeling confident." And it's and it's less convenient to spend now. And, it, and one of the things I've realised over the last probably year is that. Um, and, and uh, homeless people, homeless people, since chip and pin started becoming more popular, yeah. I, I, I honestly, because yeah. I, I work a lot in London, mm. and I, I just, they just, you see a lot of homeless people, I think, flipping neck. Yeah. It must be having a nightmare, a yeah. nightmare time of it, because yeah. who carry, I never carry cash. Neither do I. I don't always, I've never always given homeless people to go past. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Depends yeah. on the circumstance, from how I'm feeling, to what the situation, you know, whatever. Yeah. But, um, no, and it's it's it has to have had a big impact. Albeit one of those ones that sort of just slides past. It has yeah. to have a, a big impact on, like you were saying. Where's where's all the tin shakers? Mm. You'll get them. A, you'll get them um, over Remembrance Weekend on that month. In the, you know, get them in November. Yeah. And, but outside of that, where are they? Because yeah. it can't be that the return on investment must be a fraction of what it was. Yeah. No, before. it's um that that form of fundraising is very is that yeah the art, the return on on that is 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 not is generally not great um and I, and w- and what we try and do is is focus on the stuff that does 
bring in a, a really good return. Um, like, well, the trust and foundations piece is 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 the, I mean the the returns for that are amazing. Um, uh, if you're a charity and you're not working really hard on legacy fundraising, then you're missing something um, because the baby boomer generation is going to peak at so they say at about 2030 so uh well another 80 percent of the wealth in this country is owned by the over 50s 80 percent so you know those are the people that, that tend to be over once you get over 50 and admittedly i am um you tend to start being a little bit more nostalgic and uh you know thinking about how you might help or becoming more philanthropic make sure you've got a heaven yeah well, buying, your way. <laughs> buying your way in um and um so i think uh you know that you know if you're not if you're not focusing on on you know some of the, and you know as, as you already mentioned this um this chat that um you know last year we received a legacy for a 1.2 million pack that's a lot of tin shaking when you say legacy fundraising you're not about someone popping the clogs and leaving it in the will yeah yeah but it can be but it can be you know you know, I have a family. I want all of my worldly goods, the majority of them, to go to my family. So, you know, family first. Absolutely right. And I understand that both as a fundraiser, but also as a, as a, um, you know, member of a family. Um, and I want my children to have a, you know, a good head start in life. Um, but, you know, there is also room to say, actually, I'm quite happy to give 2%, 5% away to my favourite my favourite charities, and my, you know, and my wife and I will talk about that. Um, so I think nobody's wanting to, nobody's wanting to bankrupt anybody or turf somebody out on the street for a charitable donation. You know, it's just, just think about what you want to do, what are your priorities, and support those, you know, voluntary organisations that do so much good in the United Kingdom. Um, yeah, through whatever form of giving. Um. Have you done any, you personally, has there any, been, do you know, any work that's been done to look at, uh, to draw a comparison between the way the Americans do things charity-wise, support the veterans towards the UK? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, I know clinically we've done an enormous, with an enormous amount of collaboration. So with the States, with Canada, with New Zealand um, and Australia, so the, the five eyes. Um and the intensive therapy program that I mentioned earlier has really been a distillate of everything that's good from those um, other nations. Um, and I think one of the things, so actually one of the, I think one of the things we learnt from looking at other programs is that the, the preparation phase and some of the wraparound stuff, um, when, a, when a veteran is engaged in the, or, is in, or comes on the, intensive therapy program the itp those th those elements the preparation and the wraparound stuff is as important as the course itself um so actually our our results with with those groups that that do come and stay residentially is is really really good and that is seen as a, a, a sort of gold world-class standard um so there is a lot of collaboration um certainly at the clinical level um and one of our one of our art therapists did a. I'll, I'll talk about art therapy in a minute. So, but one of our art therapists did a Churchill Fellowship in the states. What's that? So, ch the Churchill Fellowships are um, 
they are a way of um, if you give somebody a bursary so the church or fellowship has I think it's got quite a big fund and it and it gives bursaries to people to go off to other parts of the globe to exchange ideas to bring back good ideas to give them good ideas um, and so one of our art therapists was a Churchill fellow in the States um, to exchange practice on art therapy. So um, on average, veterans come to us 13 years after they've left the armed services, on average. Oh, okay. So quite a long time where, <clears throat> you know, all of the things that you and I would rely on, like a job, a house, family, friends, a sense of well-being, um, purpose, all that sort of have withered away. Um, and we have found that, that, that they find it very difficult to articulate, you know, what the problem is. They just don't want to talk. You know, it's the military man. You know, men aren't natural health um, help seekers. The military male is even worse. That crack on, get on with it, you know, grab a man suit, at, you know, culture, which is changing or has changed. Um, so art therapy is a way of saying, don't talk to me about it. Just you know, draw a picture, get some paint on, you know, felt tips, crayons, pencil, whatever you want to do. Um, so, you know, all these, all these different, um, skills and, um, disciplines and, um, techniques to try and engage with the veteran, the veteran population to get them to, you know, open up and talk about some of their things. So, so, so back to the original question, you know, the collaboration between other organizations. So clinically an enormous amount of, um, collaboration with, those other nations um but then also through other disciplines like the art therapy um <clears throat> but not but not really on the actually i'd quite like to apply for a church or fellowship to go over to the states and see how the va you know do their thing and 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 how other charities um in the mental health space with veterans do some of their fundraising and what are the what are the cases for support what are the calls for action um how what do they do how do they go about doing it i think it'd be a good thing do you, uh, do you guys have a, well, maybe not now, did, did you, or do you have an R&D budget? Um, no, we no. don't. We don't. Does anyone? Yeah, they do. They do. I, I, I listened to a really, really, really good talk by somebody from Cancer Research UK, and he was talking about the 10 principles for growing fundraising. And, and one of them was innovate. And, um, and Cancer Research UK, um, seemingly have a innovation budget uh where people are encouraged to think you know outside the box and think about you know fundraising initiatives that might um uh inspire people but they're also allowed to fail um and you know we all know that we can learn from failures as much as we can from success i was thinking more r&d in terms of um uh, signs, symptoms, causes, uh, early predictors of um, of mental health issues. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 <clears throat> when I when I thought about I I you probably would need to be a clinician to smoke to, but um, that's not you know playing you down. I just don't want to put you on the spot with something where you're not on an SME with. But I was thinking um, there has been a lot of focus in the US on uh, CT and TBIs yeah. over the last few years. I know that there's there's um, there is some increasing focus coming in the UK on it and uh, the role that uh, CT and TBI, so I can't remember what CT stands for, but TBI, traumatic brain yeah. injury, and that yeah. plays in 
um, as a predictor. Yeah, yeah, as a predictor of, or a a cause Mm. of of, um, PTSD and other mental health issues, anxiety and um, erratic behaviour and all the rest of it. Um, and I'm sure the actor, the, the, there's, I mean, there's Kings, for example, you know, the Kings Centre for Military Mental Health, um, oh. you know, that that is stuff full of, you know, really bright, motivated people who are doing all this sort of research. And that, you know, that's where, you know, Professor Sir Simon Wesley works. So, you know. Who, who is he? Explain to me who he is. Oh. Sorry, I don't know. Sorry, Professor Sir Simon Wesley. I don't no, know. He's, I don't know his name. He's, a, he's, um, he's a very... Um, He's a very engaging academic. You know, normally when you meet those sorts of people, after hello, you don't understand a word. You know, it's like straight down into jargon. Um, but he, he's, he's, he's a very engaging academic. Um, he um, is at King's, um, but he has been... He's currently the president of the Royal Society of Medicine. And then prior to that, he was president of the Royal, um, the Royal Society of... Royal College of Psychiatrists. Mm. But I think for him to be president of the Royal Society of Medicine is quite unusual because he's a, psych- he's a psychiatrist. And I think that's quite unusual. And um, uh, Prime Minister May, Theresa May, asked him to review the Mental Health Act for the nation. You know, is it fit for purpose? What should we do? And, you know, that sort of stuff. But he's been a very positive advocate for... Uh, medics to choose psychiatry as a as a career choice um, but also agitating for more money to be invested in you know mental health services um, I think um, is it that if you wanted to go and see a psychiatrist you're looking at if you get referred through your GP and blah 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 it takes 18 months so is know, it that long? Yeah I think uh, something like that um, I think when I when, when I first went to the mill it was um, this is a um, this is a Good news story about uh, Billy Shirt. It took me. It was. A, it was not. It was not even a fortnight. I think. Right. Not a fortnight. Right. Uh, yeah. By the time, like, yeah, it was. It was very quick. It was very quick. Eighteen months, man. That's yeah. uh, that's that's eighteen months of that person going down the pan. Yeah, potentially yeah. down the pan. But I think there is a there is now a recognition that that more money needs to go into you know, mental health services. And, you know, I um, came across something recently that the first, he was a Canadian uh, former, he was in the, he'd been in the, he'd he'd served, he was a a Second World War veteran and he was the first chairman or chief executive of the World Health Organization. And he was the one that said, "There there cannot be true physical health without good mental health. And when you look at it now, you think, yeah, that's absolutely right. And if we got that right, you know, the mental health stuff, you know, mindfulness, all of it, and I'm, I'm way out of my depth, but, you know, if we got the mental health piece right, then, you know, everything else, almost like a, you know, back problem would just align, wouldn't it? And then life would be much better. Unfortunately, it's interesting, this, unfortunately, I think that we, the way we live, and I would say we, I'm broadly speaking about human beings in the UK, because I have never lived in India, I've never lived in America. Right, never lived in so probably so in the West. No, I'm going to speak from my experience here, okay, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to go to the West now, right? Okay. We, I think, our the the we you got the physical health, uh, physical health, the mental health. The physical health leads the mental health, whereas if you flip it round and you focus on your mental health, the mental mm. health leads the physical. It leads it both, and like, mm. for the reason you know, for the, like you're just saying there, but 
come back um, onto the focus that is coming. It seems to be coming much more into mental health now, not just with the military, but also just generally. Like I work in Marsat, and uh, it's my you know it's my job, and um, the huge drive on there with mindfulness and well-being, just because it's why not. But the reality is, is that from a company perspective, a profit-making company, and this is I'm not saying there's a reason they do it. But actually, you become a more productive company. Yeah. For me, since uh, for me since I embarked on this journey in the last couple of years, and especially since I started the podcast, meeting people like yourself and other people who are just more aware of that, the mental health aspect than I am, and the lessons I've learned from them, I now know through the tools I've got, I'm a more productive person than I was back then. I want to say productive. I mean, just generally, not like work. I mean, mm. just generally work, personal life. I've got better, you know, I've got better relationships, interpersonal relationships with people. Fit there, I'm generally more happy. You know, I'm, I'm generally in a better place than I was before, just through a little bit more focus on mental health and well-being. And so, a focus on that in the UK or any country can only be a good thing for that for everybody. Well, uh, um, we are experiencing um, corporate UK coming to us and saying, you know, could you help with workplace stress? Have you got anything? You know, if we have a big um, uh, if a company has a big veterans network, then you know it's a natural it's a natural organisation for us to engage with, principally for them to support us in the work that we're doing. Um, but um, mental health issues and and stress at work have now overtaken seemingly um, musculoskeletal problems. So all oh, got a bad back, not going to work. But it's now it's it's stress in the workplace. It's, so it's overtaken it. Well, the biggest one thing is this: this figure has been around for you. You'll know it. I know that figure, but one of the facts about this is that's been around for years. Is that the biggest cause? The biggest cause of work-related ill health in the UK is stress. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. nothing else. It's yeah. it's stress, but it's not been on the radar. But yeah. it, it has all not for a very long time been the biggest cause of workplace ill health, yeah. and yet no one's paid attention to it until the last five ten years. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, you get what, you get stress index and stress risk assessments and all that these days, don't you? In, in the workplace, you fire. A, I haven't had one. You need one. And I don't work for a mental health charity. <laughs> I mean, yeah, news to no, me. No, yeah, no, no. Um, hey, we've got a, we've got a couple of minutes left, right? Um, I'm glad. I'm I'm glad for your time. Today. I really, pre- I know, I know, especially with all the media stuff going on. Um, it, might, it can't be an easy time for, for yourself. It can't be an easy time for combat stress. Um, I felt that it was important to hear it from the horse's mouth. I've not had this opportunity with a charity before. Mm. In That's in a, experiencing a difficult time. And um, especially with today's sort of culture, outrage, media and all that. It, it's hard to tell what the bloody hell is going on. Yeah. Um, I appreciate your honesty. I hope we didn't put you on the spot too much. Uh, in fact... What is so? What's the next step for you guys? And while you while you while you telling me that, I'm going to pull up. I was going to have a quick look at Twitter. I want to see if there's anything on there I want to bring up. If people finding some questions or not. Well, so the next step for us is to <coughs> is to um, operationalize. So make happen this service redesign. So trans trans transition from what we're doing now to um, this new model. So that's the first thing. Um, is to for us also to speak to our friends, our friends in government, our friends in the other uh, service charities to see who can help, but not 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 um, you know sticking plaster help. It's help in terms of um, you know sustainable funding going forward, and that could be a three or five year period, something like that. 
Um, and then for us to move on from the survive mode into thriving. And um, um, I, so I think those are probably, I think those are probably the three things that, that we ought to focus on as an organization, you know, so transition, um, speak to our friends and, um, and then thrive. You know, combat stress has been around for literally just over a hundred years. Um, I am certain that the ups and downs over that hundred year period have been as equally as, um, challenging as the time that we find ourselves in now. Um, and one of the things that, that, you know, I am constantly staggered by the, um, the dedication and the professionalism and the passion that people have who are employed by combat stress. They own, I'm, when, when we, when we talk to staff about, um, the service redesign and what impact that is likely to have on their roles, because of course, you know, it's a consultation process. So, you know, we are downsizing, people will be made redundant, I imagine, or that's the worst case scenario that we, um, that we discuss with them. The, the biggest reaction, particularly from the clinical pe- people, was how will this affect veterans? They, they weren't saying, my job, my job. It was, how will this affect veterans and how do I communicate these changes to the people that I'm seeing? And that was, that was the first concern that they had. So I'm sure that combat stress has been through ups and downs over the last hundred years. Um, th- the need for our services is absolutely apparent. You know, we've seen a, a very large increase in the number of new veterans seeking help over the last decade. Um, and we predict this, you know, in the teeth of, um, well, the thick of Afghanistan. You know, we were saying this, what's going to happen is that we'll, we will we'll come out of Afghanistan and it's going to be then that we'll need the biggest help because we know that there is this lag that people come to us, you know, years after they've left the armed services. Um so outside of the so outside of the, the this transition to the new the new model, um, the focus is very much correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, focus is very much on caring and and maintaining the care for the beneficiaries currently in the system. Okay, which then leaves the question. Uh, so during this pause of taking on new referrals, um, wh- where should where where are you signposting people to go during this pause? Yeah. Okay. So <coughs> e- either. Um, either to their GP um, to find other routes into the health service um, to other military charities who might be able to support them. Um, but, you know, we're just trying to be honest with people that, uh, you know, at the moment we're having to pause bringing new veterans into our service. Um, now, I know that that is not desperately satisfactory, but I think the alternative, which is chucking somebody a false... Um, you know, ray of hope is mm-hmm. is just something that we should not do, and I think you know the pause is the right thing that um, that we have with a gr- regret um, alighted on. No, I agree with you, and uh, like like we mentioned earlier, you're going to become hopefully become a more efficient organisation and, and provide even more quality of care than you, you have done before, like I yeah. said before with Barn. Um, one of the things I'm going to add on to there with the, the signposts and sort of things is one of the things that veterans seem to overlook all the time, and again. The care you get varies from unit to unit, but the fastest, I know one of the fastest ways Power Edge can get assistance, rapid assistance, is through 
PowerEdge HQ yeah. and the PowerEdge Association. And most, if not all, uh, military units, they have some form of association. So you've got, you've got, you know, the NHS, GP is an option. You've got other charities as an option. And you've got, you don't forget your, your unit associations. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, looking out for your own buddies, you know, those people that you did serve with yeah. and say, you know, haven't heard from them, didn't come to this, didn't, didn't go to the officer's dinner or the, the whatever it was, you know, and, you know, check in with each other. Yeah. Um, there was a really good message from the Archbishop of Canterbury at the beginning of this year. And I think it was probably a little bit Brexit focused to get back onto that, which was, you know, reach out. If you haven't spoken to somebody for a while because of an argument or whatever, just reach out, just reach out to somebody that you you know, haven't spoken to. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, being part of the military family is one of the most enviable things to be part of. And, um, you know, reach out, check in with people. I agree. Robert, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been, no, it's been really good to um, to come and do this. So good. thank you for inviting me. At Combat Stress on social media, right? Uh, yeah, I have, uh, I've also got my own Twitter handle as well, but th- I'm sure that Combat Stress will be pushing mine out there <laughs> somewhere right. good luck with it all great thank and you and to the whole of the organisation great thank you very much thanks thank you for listening to the podcast I hope you enjoyed it don't forget Rugby for Heroes next event is on 27th of March at the Tame Hair in Leamington. It's a supper club. There are literally two tickets left. There's only two tickets left. So get on to uh, Rugby for Heroes on social media at Rugby Number Four Heroes. Get the link to and get the ticket and the last two tickets. And I will see you there. Northampton uh, Saints and in an England International Rugby star will be one of the speakers. And also Richard Sharp, ex Royal Marine officer and now CEO of Team Rubicon UK. Um, thank you to those guys for coming along and supporting the Rugby for Heroes event. Thank you to Rugby for Heroes for sponsoring this podcast. And lastly, but by no means least, West Wynn Nissan. The UK's largest Nissan dealership. Up to a 20% discount. You're going to go and buy stuff from them if you're military personnel or service leaver. Thank you, West Wynn Nissan. Thank you to you for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes for the podcast if you enjoyed it. Um, and if you were found a guest Deering, if you like listening to Robert, or if you want to get in touch with him or combat stress, then get on and let them know. Get online, social media, and speak to them. If you enjoyed it and thought he was good, good answers and he was a, a worthy guest, then tell him. Tell them. They didn't have to come on. They chose to come on, answer some tough questions. Thank you very much. Until the next time. Out.